0: Hello, I'm Zeb newerth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of healthcare. The views I express on the podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, the topic we're going to cover today is one of the most brilliant clinical care models and organizations that I have been witness to, and that is Chen Med. To be totally honest with you, I'm not sure how to characterize or describe Chen Med. People refer to it as a value-based senior care model, a Medicare Advantage care model. I would consider it a whole health and whole person model, emphasizing relationship-centered care. But truth is, I would call it one of the best examples of a mission-driven healthcare organization I've come across. And by the way, if you've ever wondered If a small group of people can transform healthcare delivery in our country, I would suggest that this is your answer because they are. I could go on and on, but better than that, we're going to hear directly from the co-founder and CEO, Chen Med, Chris Chen. Before I introduce Dr. Chen, I'm going to make a request. If you find value in the podcast, please share it with your colleagues and also rate it online. My purpose here is to create more dialogue and more community that can catalyze the much needed transformation in American healthcare. To those of you who have already begun sharing the podcast and I've already seen it happen today, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Dr. Chris Chen is the chief executive officer of Chan Med. ChenMed has been named to Newsweek's Most Loved Workplaces list, Fortune Magazines Change the World list, as well as earning recognition by the White House, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the UK's National Health Service. ChenMed has also been featured in publications such as Modern Healthcare, Health Affairs, Forbes, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New England Journal of Medicine, The Guardian, and Medical Economics which named ChenMed the best primary care system in the US. Most recently, if you've been following the news, Newsweek actually named ChenMed the number one workplace in healthcare in America. Now, turning to Dr. Chan, he graduated from the University of Miami's Honors Program in Medicine. He went on to complete his medical training in internal medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess, a Harvard University teaching hospital. He completed a fellowship in cardiology, which he is boarded in, at the Cornell University Medical College in New York City. Dr. Chen continues also to see patients at the company's Miami Gardens in Florida. In addition to all that, Chris and his brother, co-founder, Dr. Gordon Chen, have recently published a book entitled, The Calling, A Memoir of Family, Faith, and the Future of Healthcare. My friends, I have recently read that book cover to cover, mostly in one sitting, I couldn't put it down, I found it to be so uplifting, so inspiring, and actually so instructive, an amazing story that I would recommend definitely for every healthcare leader in our country and across the world, but anyone who's really interested in transforming healthcare, and particularly in transforming primary care. Chris, I could go on and on, but just want to welcome you back to Creating New Healthcare. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, It's great to be here.
0: You know, I've known you for a while, we've spoken on and off for years, but I have to tell you, I am starstruck after reading the book. So I'm going to try to put that away and and just try to to talk with you today.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's a whole bunch of stories in there that uh, <laughs> you're kind of not clear that if I'm putting this in the book, I guess I'm putting it out for the public. So I'm still coming to terms with that. <laughs>
0: You shared a lot it was really quite amazing to see how personal you and your brother got in that and I, it was one of the things that just kept me riveted to the book it touched me on so many different levels not just the cerebral part and and the healthcare part but but i really want to dive in with you we're going to definitely talk about the book and i have so many questions for you but just to start i'd like to begin by exploring just the basics of the chen med healthcare model in terms of the practice approach what are some of the factors that make patient care and the care experience different? I would say very different from the more general or generic primary care model that most people are familiar with.
1: Well, you know, let me just go back to the the, the reason why we created the model. Mm-hmm. You know, we noticed such a large difference in the life expectancy and the quality of the healthcare between zip codes in a given city that have, and the zip codes that have not. If you look at any city in America today, you'll typically find a 20 to 30 year life expectancy difference between the wealthiest zip codes and the most underserved zip codes. And so we thought that we needed to create a healthcare model that would fundamentally equalize that care, and we thought that that would occur through primary care. And so what we did was, you know, the typical doctor model is you see a patient, you get paid for one patient. The model that we thought about was well, in order to improve the health of the most underserved populations, we call them the old, the poor and the sick. and to focus on these neighborhoods, we, we couldn't just get paid for doing one thing at a time. We had to look at the patient holistically and that involves looking at their health status as it relates to pills procedures, and referrals but also at all these other components that really influence health. And some people would call that social determinants of health. We used to call them financial barriers to care, but that involves multiple things, you know, education, safety, food and security, the family structure and so forth. In fact, if you just look at COVID, one of the largest reasons why that COVID uh, predominantly killed old, poor, sick minorities was because they had different lives. They 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 were living in much tighter quarters. They were multi-generational. They had much lower access. They had challenges with poverty and many other things. And so um, we said, let's look at the whole patient. And for us to do that, we had to do something called global full risk, meaning we get a set amount of money and we have to deliver all of health, not health care, deliver all of health with those dollars. And so what we did was we said, let's allow... Let's give these patients amazing primary care, transformative primary care. What does that mean? Well, every month we would see our patients, all of our patients, they get their doctor's cell phone numbers. The average patient to doctor ratio in these neighborhoods is typically 3,000 patients to one doctor. Well, we lowered that ratio to 400 to one. As you know, concierge medicine is typically about 600 to one, so it's even better than Their ratios are even better than sort of the wealthiest of the wealthy in this country. We offer them door-to-doctor transportation, uh, medications on-site, social events on-site so we can get over loneliness. We go to their homes and we solve their individual problems. During COVID, we were delivering toilet paper. So there's really no place we won't go to improve the health. And with the one goal, we must reduce catastrophic events. And so that was our primary goal. And that model we found out works and we were able to grow it to now over 30 cities across the U S and we continue to expand to every city that has this fundamental problem with a deeply underserved community.
0: And that number 400, that wasn't just a made up number, you and your family through years of practice and years of experience with that sort of, whole health approach with that health delivery approach, you you came up with that number. Could you share a little bit? And I believe it was your your father who was involved, Dr. Chen Sr., who's involved as well in helping to formulate that number.
1: Right. Well, you know, what we discovered is, you know, healthcare costs are a big problem in this, in this country. And especially in the last few years, we've seen a dramatic escalation in the cost of care. And, you know, as you're thinking about costs, really... It's the minority of patients that account for the majority of the costs. So, uh, five percent of the population will account for almost half of healthcare costs in this country. Fifteen percent will account for seventy to seventy-five percent of the costs in this country, and so. We really don't have a cost problem across the board in this country. We have primarily a cost problem that's driven by the 5 to 15% of the population. And we discover that those patients tend to be older, poorer, mostly minorities, and they have multiple chronic conditions. And so when we went into these neighborhoods, we quickly found out that the patients that were the most underserved and the most vulnerable were also costing the most and therefore needed much closer attention. So we limited the panel sizes initially to 450. We've now driven that to 400. And that 400 to 1 ratio, which again is fundamentally lower than the typical 3000 to 1 ratio, allows us to focus on the most vulnerable patients and dramatically improve access for those patients, which has led to a 30 to 50% reduction of hospitalizations, we publish this, 20 to 30% reduction of stroke, we publish this, we actually double six-month cancer survival rates in our patients. Depending on the cohorts you look at, we can reduce heart failure admissions by 50, 70, up to 90%. And we're continuing to see evidence that we are extending life uh, as much as five, seven, and in some cases, nine years. So it's working, um, and it's quite exciting. But this it can only be done because we're seeing these patients at a minimum every month, hmm. sometimes twice a month, and if necessary, even every day. So that's the model. It's about frequent access, frequent following. That's what we call it internally, connecting a patient and having them develop a close relationship with their PCP who is incentivized to fundamentally reduce hospitalization rates by going after the entire patient.
0: So much to ask you about there. And I think that last point that you made, we are in a crisis in this country, the cost of care just continued to escalate. And I think obviously the hospital care is a major, major factor. People entering into EDs and then being admitted to hospitals, major factor in that cost and the ability you were just citing to really target that and not to limit care, but actually by proactively giving primary care upfront, preventive, proactive care, and therefore reducing the avoidable hospitalizations, tremendous benefit, obviously, to the patient, their family, but tremendous benefit to the healthcare system in reducing one of the largest factors in costs of care.
1: You know, we like to think that we're helping to create the industry of preventative care.
0: Mm.
1: You went through sort of, you know, a lot of my training, and I remember graduating with five board certifications and not really knowing how to fundamentally prevent heart failure admissions. I mean, we think with all that training, I would be able to do it and realize when I joined Chen Bed and joined my dad, um, my very first patient, I wasn't able to prevent his admission. And so we're having to sort of invent and develop a way for doctors and, and care teams to fundamentally reduce these catastrophic events which we call our emissions and so that knowledge doesn't exist today it really doesn't a a lot of our research our academic institutions teaching institutions they're really about teaching doctors how to prevent people from dying that's very important right you you do want to prevent people from dying but we don't have a lot of training in helping people be healthy right let me give you one example if you talk to most doctors, you say, how much of heart disease? Heart disease is the number one, uh, essentially, My, in, from the data that we look at, the number one cause of admission in this country, the, the number one cause of death in this country. And, and And if you talk to most doctors, you say, what percent of heart disease would have been preventable with major lifestyles and behavior changes? A lot of cardiologists would say probably close to 90%, between 80 and 90% of all heart diseases preventable if you could get people to follow lifestyle and behavior changes. So with all the training that I went through, it normally takes somewhere between 14 and 15 years for, for people to become a cardiologist. How many minutes of classes did I take in those lifestyle and behavior changes to prevent heart disease? which we believe 80 to 90% of it's preventable. And in my case, it was zero minutes, not a 30-minute class throughout that entire journey. There's something missing there, right? We're not focusing on prevention. We don't know what to teach people in terms of prevention. And so that, that, that that's a big issue. And so we are a, essentially inventing this, this industry, and we are financially incentivized to do so as well because we pay for every admission. And if, if patients become catastrophically ill, it, our opinion is those catastrophic events, um, they are well over 50% of the cost of healthcare and we've got to figure out a way to reduce them.
0: Yeah, Chris, boy, I, I want to dive into the lifestyle medicine part and, and also just to kind of ask you more about the contextual care you do in terms of getting to know your patients, but just to kind of just briefly summarize. so. Y'all focused on the patients who really need primary care and preventive care, the older folks, sicker folks, poor folks. You said, okay, we're going to have less patients per doctor, and, and that allows you to see the patients more frequently and I assume have longer visits, which I definitely wanted to ask you about that. And then you use that greater amount of time and the, the greater frequency of visits to focus not just on, on the clinical part, which I think you knock that ball out of the park in terms of medications and polypharmacy and complex medical problems you were just speaking to. But you also in there have built in something that is really lacking in American healthcare, which is lifestyle medicine. And another thing which is really lacking, which is the focus on the, the patient as a person, their home life, their social life, all the context of their life, and, and including, I think, you know, I've heard you talk about even the purpose and meaning and things like that. And so is that a fair summary or how would you expand upon that?
1: You know, there's more, there's more to patients than the biology. And we believe that, that the majority of health is actually driven outside of the clinical environment. And so you've got to figure out how to solve that. And the wrong way to do it is top down, is to say, oh, well, we have, you know, in certain populations, there's massive food insecurity. Let's just give everybody food. And, And that's not, that is a leading cause, but it's not always a cause. See, in general, when you're talking about highly complex populations that are especially low income, there could be one of 50 things that is detrimental to that patient's health. And for each patient, they have a different combination of those 50 things. And so the one-size-fits-all approach, which unfortunately we have a lot of that in healthcare today, is really not effective in in fundamentally improving health. So the first thing that we have to do is when we train our doctors, is to get them to think more holistically and to get them to realize that there is not a one-size-fits-all, okay? So doctors are really important. Doctors and their care teams are really important because we deputize them. We train them to go into these neighborhoods and take care of 400 patients, of which each of their 400 patients has tremendous complexity. And then we give them the resources to then solve those individual challenges. So if your grandson is stealing your Social Security check, not everybody has that problem. If your son is a drug user and a drug dealer and is now living in your home, um, that is a problem that needs to be solved. Right. And so there it's just it's complex. So we have the time that we do and we can do that. I'll just give you one cool sort of thing that we do for patients. Every patient that starts, we we do what is called an early embrace. And it's essentially a executive physical on steroids. And their first visit typically is well over two hours, head to toe, comprehensive assessment that understands what's happening with them as individuals with their bodies and in their homes and even their families so in our male patients if anything happens to their wives they usually die within a year isn't that an amazing metric hmm. so you know is that is that an important factor for their health absolutely right so we want to figure out how that relationship can be strong we want to make sure that that not just the, our patients are healthy, but their wives are healthy and their spouses are healthy. Um, And then how does that interact with the overall patient and their lifestyle? Um, And and of course, their post-procedures and referrals. So.
0: that's great. You mentioned before you as a physician didn't receive any lifestyle medicine training and the importance of that, because like you were saying, most of cardiovascular disease could actually be prevented through lifestyle interventions. So One of the things that I I picked up in your book, which I wasn't aware of, is that you take that sort of training and you codify it, and then you actually train your physicians and your teams in that. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because I I found that to be, in terms of even ongoing education for doctors, as a physician, I thought, oh, my God, I, I would love that to continue that sort of training, especially in areas that I had not received training
1: in. So what we like to tell doctors is we... Invited them to our organization, and there's of course a you know long waiting list, and and we're we're pretty selective. But um, we invite them to our organization not because they have a lot of knowledge in how to practice to reduce uh, events. We we invite them because of several things. Number one, because of their mission drive, they have to have a strong mission component of wanting to go and serve the most underserved patients. Okay, so that's number one. Number two. We invite them in because they can think holistically. If they're very focused thinkers and they can't take into account all the other factors that that impact health and and can't coordinate that, they'll struggle. So that's another factor uh, that we look at. The third thing that we look for is their ability to learn what we're going to teach them. And that's really about learning agility, which includes humility. Uh, doctors that come to us that say, let me teach you how to practice preventative care. And I tell them, you know, we have studies that have 50,000 patients in them that we're publishing, <laughs> It's larger than the studies that, that we were running when I was in Boston, right? And, and I said, no, that that's not going to work. We, we are compiling a, an enormous amount of data and knowledge uh, driven by our clinicians to help us guide that. And so we're looking for doctors who can, first of all, learn what we already know, and then can help join the journey to help us create the future of preventative medicine. And so that's what we're looking for. And then what we do is we put them through a nine-month training course. We tell them it's a nine-month fellowship. It's a it's a, a highly paid <laughs> fellowship. But it is a nine-month fellowship, and we're going to invest in them. Um, if you actually do the numbers, we actually invest about $2 million per doctor to, wow. to train them and develop them while they're on this journey to moving from getting paid for sickness to getting paid for health. And it's an incredible journey for them. That's
0: amazing. Another thing you do, which I really found fascinating and to me speaks in part to not only continuous training, but also removing some of the isolation that physicians experience being in an exam room all day, every day you all do something called facilitated practice. Could you share something about that?
1: You know, remember I mentioned this concept of humility. So humility is not always encouraged and celebrated in healthcare, right? And, and, And that's something that we are looking for. And the reason is, is because, remember there's this new kind of medicine And a lot of it is knowledge, but not all of it is knowledge. Some of it is about how you interact with the patients. You can only change behavior if patients trust you. In fact, that's not just a doctor thing. Mm -hmm. You will only take people's advice and allow them to change your behavior if you have a relationship with them and they trust you, okay? So we've got to teach doctors how to earn trust And build a relationship so that way when they tell them to change their lifestyles or to take a pill or to do an assortment of things, they will actually do it. I'll give you an example. It's very hard. Even if we give away our cell phone numbers to our our patients, it's very hard to convince them to even call us on our cell phones. And you're like, that sounds bizarre. No, our patient population is overwhelmingly respectful of doctors. So even when they when we program our numbers into their phones they are still embarrassed about calling. And so we have to we say call us, test us, you know, earn that trust. So facilitated practice is really about going into the exam room with a doctor to give them feedback about best ways to improve their relationship with the patient as opposed to teaching them outside the exam room in a theoretical sense. That requires incredible physician leaders that can partner with our, our new PCPs. And that also requires tremendous humility on the PCP part to wanna learn this care that really fundamentally makes a difference.
0: And so, again, I love this. As you described in the book, you. Basically, it's your colleagues that are going in to observe each other and whether it's observing their relational ability and and what they do, their tech savviness, their clinical care management, the management of the team. And and so offering feedback in real time, which is, again, I, I think tremendous. I mean, this is what every other high performance industry does, you know, whether it be athletics or music, or you have that feedback so you can continuously get better and better and better and and who better to get it than from someone else who's actually in the field with you, who knows exactly what you're doing and experiencing and is trying to get better themselves. And, and one of the fascinating things I, I learned from reading your book was that oftentimes, you know, if I go in and observe a colleague, it, it's not that I'm critiquing them, it's actually that I'm learning from them and I'm like, wow, look at what, you know, Dr. So-and-so did I'm going to start to do that. In fact, I think all of us should start to do that. And I think it's just best practice learning in real time. And there's no other way to know that. There's no other way for doctors to share the amazing wisdom and skill and capabilities that they bring to the patients each day. No other way to do that except to actually see it and learn directly. And I just thought that facilitated practice was was brilliant.
1: You know, it's interesting. You brought this up that it's, this exists in every other field especially in high performance areas Mm -hmm. and actually as doctors we, we had this for years right as when we're training right some reason it goes from let's continue to improve and have a great deal of humility as we improve to completely shutting off and that's something that no longer occurs after a certain point usually after training so you know we're just bringing that back in yeah, we're bringing back what doctors are familiar with, and we're doing it for the benefit of the patient, right? So, how can we learn together? There are different doctors at different levels of the journey through um, this concept of sort of preventative care that leads to superior outcomes, and um, you know, you, we can all stand to learn from each other.
0: It's fantastic. It also sort of leads me to ask the question about burnout. And we know burnout in, in primary care is, it's about 50%, literally one out of every two primary care physicians has some symptoms of burnout, and which are terrible, right? I mean, it's, it's depression, it's demoralization, it's it just on and on. And so, first of all, are you seeing a, a lower percentage of burnout amongst your providers and your teams, your nurses and your teams? And what do you think contributes to some of the work you're doing around that?
1: So. Our doctors have a low rate of burnout and we believe that it's not because the job is easier. The job is actually harder. In fact, one of the things that I tell our physicians when they join is this will be the hardest job you've ever had, Hmm. but you're going to love it. And so I, I don't believe that the predominant challenge with doctors is that they're working too hard because at least the primary care doctors that I know the hours are not long and doctors are absolutely able to work hard and they, and they enjoy working hard. They wouldn't make it as doctors if they didn't enjoy working hard. Okay. Doctors enjoy working hard. It just has to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that in a FIFA service environment, that job is not, doesn't feel meaningful to them. And it's not clear if they're making a difference in patients' lives. It's not clear. Are they part of the solution or are they part of the problem? I mean, if you're a primary care doctor and your primary job is to get make sure that you're ordering enough MRIs and you're, ordering, you're sending enough people to specialists so that way you, know, you can get high-cost procedures to be as high as possible to increase revenue, that doesn't feel validating. And then you have all this documentation and all this administrative work. For what purpose? For the purpose so that way you know, we can get more procedures downstream. It just doesn't feel good. But if ultimately you tell doctors that we care about their outcomes, we care about their our patients, you can spend more time with your patients and actually see them more frequently, develop closer relationships with them, celebrate when they win, cry when they lose, all together. And you have a team around you that helps you accomplish this. And if you are able to accomplish this successfully, you will become an integral part of helping to develop the future of healthcare, and you will grow. And you can grow in your career and you can be promoted and you can become a physician leader from a local level to a city level, to a regional level, to a divisional level, all the way up into a national level and have huge relevance in the future of healthcare. You know what? People will work very hard for that and they'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And it makes a difference.
0: Chris, thank you so much for that. It, it makes so much sense in terms of solving this issue of burnout. You mentioned the team and also the issue of documentation. I know we don't have a lot of time to get into this, and it is a little bit in the weeds, but one of the things that's fascinating me about ChenMed is the operations. An electronic medical record, I think, was designed specifically for this purpose all the things you were talking about before in terms of the specific questions and even non-clinical factors that doctors should think about. I imagine that the system you've built, including the technology platform, supports the physicians and their teams in actually enabling them to do a better job with that. I'm just wondering if you could maybe just say a word or two about that. I know it's a huge, huge topic.
1: Absolutely. The current technology systems in place are designed to serve the customer. And the predominant customer in healthcare today that can afford technology systems, especially the largest ones, are designed to increase transactions, right? Fee-for-service. If you are working in a large system and you are the CEO of that system and you ask for half a billion dollars from your board to go and invest in technology systems, the first question they're going to ask you is, well, how are you going to afford this $500 million system? Show me how it's going to be better for us. And the way it's going to be better is that it facilitates and encourages and reinforces the ability for the organization to be uh, financially um, better off. So that means the workflows for that the doctor has to go through are going to be about facilitating what drives the economics of the organization, which means increasing the cost of care. Well, our technology systems have to do exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't buy anything off the shelf. So our doctors got together and we paired them up with an industry leading tech team. It recently won an award as a um, best place to work for mid-sized tech company. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. interesting because it's a freestanding tech company. And they partnered with our doctors And um, they created a system that actually helps uh, doctors deliver a better outcome and reduce catastrophic events and minimizes the need for unnecessary documentation. And so that's what the system does. The system is, is designed for the team. Every person on the team has their entire world built into that technology. There's, there's essentially almost nothing that they see that they need to do their job from a tech perspective that isn't created to encourage and reinforce our mission, whether it be our care promoters, our care coordinators, our care facilitators, the PCPs, you know, our pharmacy technicians, all of the above. So everybody is working together. Everybody has their own technology designed to drive the workflows that lead to a better outcome for the patient. And um, all of this is baked in the cloud. So if you think about what the ChemMed model really is, is we look for these underserved areas where there's just this massive you know, income and life expectancy difference. We pop down a multimillion dollar beautiful clinic in the middle of that neighborhood. We deputize and train a PCP and their care team to work together. And then we give them the technology that has the embedded analytics and the EMR and all the right insights at the right place at the right time. So that way they can go in and solve these complex challenges for each individual patient in their panels of around 400. That's the ChemMed model.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. It's just stepping back for a moment. It's, it's so counter to the predominant American healthcare system, right? And the healthcare system is about large panels of patients, like you were saying, 2,000 to 2,500 on average patients per doctor. And with that many patients in your panel, you're going to have to limit the access they get to the primary care doctor. The technology is not intentionally made to assist providers and their teams in value-based or preventive care in the way you're describing. And you, you all have literally gone the completely opposite direction. Even population health, which I've spent many years in, as you were pointing, it's sort of this high-level, top-down approach, trying to use some of the analytics you were talking about. But I think the the challenge is it's not baked into the actual real-time delivery of care at the point of care with that patient. And that, for me, is, you know, as I'm thinking about what the rest of us are doing and what you're doing, you've taken all of that and brought it right to the point where the the doctor and his or her team are sitting with the patient and delivering care, which is amazing. And so, so efficient, and I'm sure so much more effective.
1: Well, you know, because with this, this field is essentially being invented, right? As we speak right in front of our eyes, Hmm. because people are really realizing that the fee for service is increasing costs and quite frankly, reducing outcomes. And it's not because it's not because of the people. The people working in these systems are some of the most beautiful people in my mind in the planet. I mean, I remember being in the ICU with COVID and just being cared for by some of the most incredible people I I, I can imagine. Mm. The problem is it's the system. The incentives are fundamentally broken. And then the workflows are designed for those incentives. And so you have really beautiful people stuck in a really ugly system. And I think that's the primary problem. You know, as you're thinking about what we're having to invent in terms of this concept of preventing bad things from happening as we're learning, we're able to design the workflows. We're actually able to create the technology that facilitates that process. Cause all technology does is technology enables something that you're really trying to accomplish, right? It enables an existing process. And so first thing first is we have to develop, what is the, what we discover, what is the right process? How do you prevent heart failure admissions? Next thing is once you decide how you do that, then you got to embed that into your workflows. And then the third thing you got to do is you got to develop technology that tells you how you're doing in real time. So you know if what you're doing is the right thing that you're doing and, you, and and are you doing it at the right intensity and the right patience and is it working? And so all of that feedback comes back to that care team in real time. Yeah. And doctors love that. I mean, there's nothing worse than like doing a lot of work and not knowing if it's working. You got to know, you got to have that feedback. When you hit the gas accelerator in your car, you want it, you expect the the RPMs to go up. Well, I mean, obviously we're moving to electric, but in the old days, you know, the RPMs will go up and the speed will go up, right? And so you want that reinforcement and that's really critical to have. Again, and I think a lot of the existing systems that we have in place, the, there was not any malintent. The challenge is, is that that is the way healthcare is delivered today by and large, transactional fee-for-service system where two things happen. Number one, you know, healthcare providers do better when, when the population does worse, financially at least. And then number two, this problem, it fails the people who need the care the most. So the people who are the sickest with the lowest life expectancy, they're, we're not seeing them getting better care. We're actually seeing the opposite. We're seeing them getting worse care. We're seeing the neighborhoods that we're going into becoming more health, more of a health desert than they were one or two years ago because of these perverse economics and these and, and the wrong incentives. So that is something that really needs to fundamentally change. And I hope it does.
0: Yeah. That is again really really thoughtful. And, and I think you're spot on. That phrase you said in real time to me seems to be such a key, key point, really bringing it together. And also the fact that you don't have a population health division or some other division kind of overseeing. It. It's literally, it happens at the point of care. It happens in the exam, it happens in the communications. As you were saying, you, you'll go wherever the patient needs you to go to do this. And I think it's in real time is such a key part of your success. Did want to ask you about where you are right now with ChenMed in terms of the number of practice sites, like you talked about plopping down these practices in communities and neighborhoods where they're most needed. How many practices and how many states and what's next for ChenMed? What's your three-year vision? What's your five to seven-year vision, if you will?
1: Literally, as we're talking, we have centers opening. Um, I believe by the end of the year, we had we should have close to 120 centers hmm. across 30-something cities, across 15 15- states. States, I believe, and there is no shortage of demand. Hmm. Our, our goal is to continue to grow aggressively, in a wise way. The issue is, is that the population that we're trying to serve is growing almost as fast as we're growing. Hmm. So you could ask the question: Are are you making the, enough of a dent and a difference? And so, you know, we're we're constantly evaluating ways that we can grow faster and reach more people. And and, and I just think that you know the frustration with healthcare is is something that's pretty ubiquitous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I talk to people working in existing delivery systems and they are frustrated. I talk to uh, people in the government on both sides of the aisle, they're extremely frustrated. I talk to people who are, are payers, they're very frustrated. And then most importantly, I talk to patients and, and people who are patients of all socioeconomic levels. And what's interesting to me to me, even the highest income people don't think it works. The lowest income people clearly don't think it works because their life expectancy continues to drop. Mm-hmm. So, but but what's surprising to me is even the highest income people, where their life expectancy is going up, also do not think it works and thinks it's it, it, the value is declining because it's getting more expensive too. So um, I just think that you know something's got to give. What we our goal at ChemMed in writing our book was to really inspire people to say, listen, there is a different way to deliver health care. And it works at scale. We're not showing you a bunch of projections of what we're hoping to happen. We're seeing a replicable result that keeps happening every time we grow. And so regardless of the cities that we're growing in, we're seeing the same result. And so, you know, it's not like we have one or two or three cities that are successful. And so we went and built 30 more and hopefully they'll look the same no, they're all following the same trajectory. So the more people that can hear our message that can learn from what we've done. And, you know, you know, people have, you know, said, Chris, you put so many secrets in the book. Hmm. And and I said, that's because they're not secrets. <laughs> Maybe we can hit 3% of the people that need this care or 5%. What about the other 95%? So, so we need to get that message out there. We want people to start thinking differently. Um, if you work in a large system, we want you to have the courage to do this because it's going to take courage. Mm. You work in a large system with rising costs, you've know you you've consolidated, so you're really big. The bigger you are, the harder it is for you to change. You've implemented technology that's doing exactly the opposite of what you really want to do when in, in, when you're transforming care. So it's going to take a lot of courage to transform. But I want you to know that it's if you can get there and you can find the courage to do so, The the results are great for patients, and and also the results are sustainable financially as well. Um, Our doctors, on average, do better than they do when they work for hospital systems, and and many of them much, much better. So it is a win-win-win scenario.
0: Chris, I think that's actually a wonderful way to sort of conclude our dialogue. Again, I think everything you're saying makes so much sense, even the just explosion of the senior population in our country, for those of us who deal with this, the numbers are, are pretty staggering and the population is growing at an accelerated rate. In fact, the over 65 is growing at uh, three times the rate of the general population. And so to your point, this is not a need that is by any means shrinking. It's a need that is actually continuing to grow and will continue to grow for decades to come. And so I think what you all are doing at ChenMed is really meeting one of the most critical needs in our country and we were just talking about the Medicare or the over 65 population. Then there's the whole issue of significant percentage of people who are on Medicaid who have different needs, but also a population with more serious and and, and complex health care and health needs. So I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. You know, you mentioned before you wrote the book to inspire people. I will tell you, on a scale of one to ten, I was inspired twenty. And I know you, and I've been speaking to you, and I've been studying you and Chen Met for years. And I, I still was pretty much blown away by the book. So I would recommend it again. It's the calling, just a fantastic book. Again, I I think it is a must read for anyone who's interested in improving healthcare in America and across the globe. Chris, any I'm going to give you one final comment before signing off. Any final thoughts you want to share?
1: Reserve. I, I really appreciate you helping to get the word out. And, um, you know, the more people that know that that this is possible, and not only possible, but this is happening and it's working, the more people that will, will want to jump into, you know, this differentiated model of care. And the result that we will get is, first of all, we'll, we'll start to narrow the massive life expectancy divide in this country that's now widening. We'll start to narrow it. We'll get doctors that will have lower burnout rates because they will feel much more purpose in the work that they do. Patients will feel the love and the care of these practitioners who have worked so hard to get in the positions that they're in to really help them. The cost of care will reduce. And so rather than healthcare being, you know, one out of every $5 in this country, maybe it could be one out of every seven or less, so we can figure out ways to improve other sides of this country I and mean, the education and infrastructure, who knows all the other things that we want to invest in. And we can go off and continue to thrive as a society. But I think it starts with, uh, you know, people having the courage to take that first step and start moving in the right direction, as opposed to continually moving in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. Chris, you and I could go on. I just want to actually even underscore your point more so given I mean, the current economy that we're in and where we're heading right now is going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, I'm not going to make any predictions about the economy, but you just have to read the numbers and read the news every day. And I think this really makes what you're talking about even more important in a cost-constrained economy where prices are going up and inflation is rising. I mean, we need a healthcare system that is affordable and sustainable. And again, I think everything you're doing is not just in the realm of healthcare i think it's in the realm of our country's economy so Again, just huge, huge effort. Just can't thank you and your family enough. And it is a family effort, as I learned in the book. And again, I would recommend everyone the calling. Go on Amazon, order it. It, It's absolutely more than worth it. And again, I, I read it, literally most of it in one sitting, just could not put it down. Chris, I know you've got to go to your next appointment. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today and sharing what I and many others consider to be the iconic primary care model for the future of healthcare. And Chris, as you know, every episode, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. And those of you who are supporting those who take care of patients, it is hard work as Chris was alluding to during this conversation and I, we so much appreciate you for what you're doing and recognize how critically important your work is to individual patients, their families, our communities and our society at large. My friends, this is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.